welcome to another episode of the Munmukti podcast. Get in deep here with my fellow co-producer, Audria. Hello. So today we actually have a very special episode highlighting the LGBTQ Pride Month. The month of June is commemorated as Pride Month to honor the 1969 Stonewall riots that occurred in New York City. Now, this was an uprising that marked the beginning of a movement, the movement to outlaw discriminatory laws and practices that occurred against the LGBTQ population. Fast forwarding to 2020, LGBTQ Pride Month is celebrated all across the globe. The thing is, despite these forward movements in acceptance, awareness, and empowerment of the LGBTQ community across the world, there's still much more work to be done especially within the South Asian community. Inclusivity and visibility play such an important part for the South Asian LGBTQ identified to be heard. And to share this movement with us today is a very special couple. Yes, today we are excited to be joined by Parag and Vaibhav, a wonderful couple whose story came to light after a viral video of Parag's father reading a very emotional, heartfelt letter um, and speech at their wedding about his process of hearing about um, his son and his partner and his uh, journey to accept their love and their story. So if you haven't seen this video already, we'll link it in our show notes, but it's a real must-see. And so we're excited to be joined by them today. They're really a fun-loving couple, really great storytellers, and mental health advocates. So welcome, Parag and Vibe. Thank you for being with us today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you. Hi, Audrey. Yeah. Yay. Um, so, I mean, just to start out, uh, like I said, the, the story's viral. That's how we came across uh, y'all's story. How does it feel having your story out there, open for the world to see and across the world? Yeah, so this is Vibe. Hi, guys. So um, I think in the beginning, we were a little hesitant. We weren't quite sure how it would be taken because, uh, you know, Parag has had some time, you know, to be okay with his sexuality. He came out almost 20 years ago and I, I let him tell his story. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I came out more recently in the five, six years. So, um, you know, I was, I think I was okay with it being out like to a small group of people, but mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if, you know, this going viral would help. But I think what came out of it being viral is what pleases me the most and, you know, what we've uh, gotten to from that point onwards. So just to tell you, like, give you a quick example, like just the day after our wedding, we like, you know, I posted a picture, I think maybe four or five days later, I just posted one picture of me and Parag, you know, in our uh, wedding guard with our garlands and I just wrote the word hitched. Mm-hmm. And they were married to Parag Mehta. And that photo had like three, 4,000 likes and shares. Wow. wow. This is crazy. And I'm like, I don't even have 3,000 friends. Who are these? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe more than you're used to by a little bit. <laughs> yes, just a little bit. And I was like, oh, okay. So, and then, then you know, the, the following day was amazing. I started getting messages from around the world. People were sending me friends requests on Facebook, on Instagram, sending me messages. So I don't know if you guys know, but there's like this spam folder and like a, you know, ignore folder in Facebook you actually have from people whom you don't know and who are trying to message you. And, you know, I was just like going through some of the messages and they were like, 
an, an, an enormous amount, like hundreds of messages just saying, oh my God, you guys are so amazing. Your story inspired us. I can't even believe that you guys got married and you're both Desis. So mm-hmm. and, you know, I took it upon myself. I looked at Prag and I said, you know what? I think what's done is done. I mean, we didn't anticipate this, but mm-hmm. if it did happen, both of us should make you know an active effort in responding to every single message possible. Every now, single uh, message. That's how we spend most of our honeymoon, by the way. <laughs> is, he is how romantic. We were in like Sedona, Arizona, in this beautiful mountain retreat, and every morning I wake up and he's on his phone responding to people, and I'm like, "What are you doing?" And he's like, "Because it wasn't just like they were hopeful and inspired. Some of them were in Christ. Some of the people that messaged mm, him." really dire stories about being thrown out of their families or being abused and he was mm-hmm. giving advice to each one of them individually and a lot of them weren't English speakers yeah. that was the most amazing thing is so many of them were people who would write to me and say can I write to you in Hindi and I said no I don't read Hindi but write yeah. to my husband and he was responding in Hindi and Marathi um, even trying in Bangla and, and Gujarati so wow. I really think it goes to show that there was a hunger for this story and there was a Absolutely. hunger for some lo- learnings from the, that came out of our experience. Yeah, like the language access part was like the, the which killed me the most. And I, you know, I looked at Ryan and I said, I know it can be annoying because you're getting thousands of messages and you were still, let's be honest, we were still so overwhelmed with our wedding itself. We had like five people from all over the world, you know, join our wedding, people whom we are closest to. We didn't actually expect it to be this big and, you know, be, be so successful. We were just like so scared as we went into it. Like, you know, we can talk about it later. But, you know, when this all finished, we were still overwhelmed. But I told Parag, I said, here's the thing, Parag. Any of these people who are writing could actually have read me. When I was in India, I grew up in India, and we didn't have a role model. Uh, You know, LGBTQ movements started here in the U.S., yes. But you guys also had so much of media coverage and stories about it. Mm -hmm. Our governments and our society has, uh, you know, strategically pushed everything down and away from mainstream. Or even if it isn't mainstream, it's always ridiculed or laughed at. So right. I, you know, I know I, uh, it could be annoying, but I want to try my level best if I can respond to every single message. So far, I am still getting messages, and I'm mm-hmm. trying to respond to every single one of them. But wow. it's really rewarding experience. That's I love that, amazing. and I think that's what makes this so special: is that you're from two different countries, and you're just you know, you're able to connect with so many other people around the world because of that. Um, that's so special. Yeah, and it's very generous of your time because like you said, you know, you just got off of a wedding with who, which who wouldn't, and that's what the honeymoon is for to just decompress after <laughs> all of that. Was, and you're still spending that was, energy. <laughs> but I will say, you know, the other wave of this was with my dad's speech. Um, and we knew at the wedding itself um, right after he gave that speech, I mean, you could feel a shift in the room. Um, mm. I will tell you, if, if you look at the video, you'll see my face looks like I'm panicked because okay. I had no idea what my dad was going to say. He oh, you didn't know about this at all. I didn't. Okay. I just, you know, my, I asked my dad before and I said, you know, do you want to speak at the wedding? And he said, I'll give welcome remarks at the Sangeet on Friday night just to welcome all the guests. And then at the reception, I'd like to say something. I said, of course, you should make a toast at the reception. But I know my dad. He's a very good speaker, but he also... Um, you know, sometimes goes off script. And so I said, can we work on your speech together? Can we vet it? And he was literally <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not going to ask my son to vet my speech. I said, no, no, it's okay. You don't need to vet it through me. Why don't you work with the wedding planner? So at least she sees it and knows what it is. And my dad's like, yeah, I don't want anybody seeing it. I know what I'm doing. Wow. And he really did know what he was doing. 
but I was I was like freaking out the whole time because I was like, what's he gonna say? Mm-hmm. And then he gave this amazing speech. And literally the next morning, as people were you know saying goodbye and leaving, we had a goodbye brunch. People came up to me and said, we loved your wedding. It was amazing, but it was your dad's speech that will live with us forever because the way he spoke and and also remember who he was speaking to. He right. wasn't speaking to us or to my friends in our generation. He was speaking to his generation of mm-hmm. uncles and aunties and saying, I know that this is hard for you. I've been through there. Let me tell you how I got to the other side. And so we just thought that was amazing. But people started asking us right afterwards. They said, can we get a copy of your dad's speech? And he hadn't written it down. Mm. And so what Nebov did is about three months after the wedding, he got tired of getting these requests. So he just decided to take the video and post it on YouTube just for friends and family. And little did we know that media outlets would see it and then reach out to them and say, can we use it? Like on YouTube, for instance, I had like maybe 10 followers. And yeah. suddenly people started seeing and right now we have like 3,000 followers, 600,000 views. Just to say, you know, that universal message of love and acceptance is so needed, especially during these times, you know, such uncertainty and people are so scared and people are so worried. So, you know, I, I felt like personally that that speech gave, you know, hope to so many people. And it's interesting, you know, Parag and I, when we heard dad speak about it, you know, we both had obviously heard this story and we know the story. Parag has basically lived that story with his dad. Mm. So we were emotional and we were like, yeah, you know, this is a dad talking to us. So we didn't actually, it didn't occur to us later on, you know, what the magnitude of that speech was to other people. Because yeah. we ourselves were so unaware, like we were just listening to our father speaking, right? right? So when it came out and it became so viral, that's when it occurred to us saying, oh yes, there is so yeah. much to learn. It's been message. culturally relevant. Yeah. Like I did recently, a couple weeks ago, I got a message from some woman in Nicaragua. And she said, um, I just wanted to reach out to you and let you know that your dad's speech is now going viral among the lesbian community in Nicaragua because oh, they're wow. using it to show to their parents yeah. as they come out to them. And so the reason is because so much of Latino culture and Indian culture is similar in the dynamic between parents and children. Mm-hmm. We heard the same thing the other day. One of my colleagues who works in the Philippines, he reached out to me and said, um, I watched your video and I'm in a very conservative Catholic country like the Philippines, but so much of it felt relevant to us. So it's that transcendent power of love, yeah. acceptance, and that, that parent-child bond that I think really is what, what inspired people. So we're, we're excited about it. Tearjerker for me was that sentence where your father said, do I love my son less at 431 than I did at 432? And I seriously, like it still makes me want to cry because I also have a two-year-old. So thinking about that emotion, it just gets me. So I really understand why it was so popular among the world. It's just like um, Vaibhav was saying that that love and acceptance is so important. And especially like you mentioned as well, that he wasn't just speaking to our generation. It was his generation. And I feel that, you know, with so much attention on the LGBTQ movement and so much attention that it receives, I don't know if that kind of um, older generational voice is always there mm-hmm. as much as it could be, especially within communities where it's, it's, we're still, you know, coming to terms with it or people are still starting to get comfortable with it, that intergenerational voice, um, that's really powerful. So that's amazing. Like what an outlet and so many, like you said, it's like a global hunger. This isn't unique yeah. to even Desi communities. It's Latina, it's so many others. I will say that, you know, we typically don't read the comments. I always tell Vibhav, don't read the comments because there are horrible people out there. YouTube trolls. Awful Mm -hmm. things. But one of the more popular comments that came on all of them, or not popular, but one of the more common comments was about my mom. Because if you watch the video, 
all the focus is on my dad's words, but my mom is standing right there. And a lot of people misinterpreted the facial reaction that she had because she looks very stoic in the video. And they thought, oh, the mom is clearly not happy, right? Like the dad's very supportive. Yeah. But, and so I saw so many commenters say that. And I just wanted to anybody who's listening and, and who watches the video to know, uh, my mom is like any other Desi mom at any other Desi wedding, which is she's emotional. She's incredibly emotional about this whole wedding. She was also sleep deprived like we all were. Oh my so goodness. I want to make it clear on my mom's behalf that she was incredibly happy for us, has been our, one of our biggest champions. Um, but what you were seeing of her face was the, the memories of 20 years ago and living through mm. that period and how difficult it was uh, and how we came out of it. So I think that that's a lesson for people is that we can all change. We're all capable of being better. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, um, you know, we've, we've been talking about so much about your story and we've kind of touched on it in terms of the video and stuff, but um, for those of our listeners who may be not aware of your love story, would you mind just kind of recapping it a little bit? How you guys met, where, sure. how things went? Yeah, so uh, this started, uh, you know, in 2012, but just for a little bit of a background. So I had just moved to the U.S. in 2011, August of 2011 for a master's program. And then, you know, that was the first, uh, you know, time in a foreign country, away from home. So it was really hard for me. And, you know, the first few months was hard. And then, you know, I got an amazing opportunity to study abroad in Bangladesh. So I went there for a semester. And then when I came back in the summer, it was summer of 2012, and it was Pride Month. And I read about this group, it was called Kush DC. Kush means happy uh, mm -hmm. in English, oh, and right, okay. also a synonym for gay. So that's why they call themselves Kush DC. It's a uh, you know, group based in DC for LGBTQ DCs. And I read about them you know, on the internet, uh, on Facebook, and you know, I heard that they were marching. And you know, I'd never gone to a pride parade in India. They were happening, but again, for the fear of being outed, I never did. So mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? I'm in America now, a different society altogether. Let me just go march with them. And then, you know, I was hanging out with a group of uh, Indian kids who had come to the U.S. with me, like they're all in the master's program in different, uh, you know, schools. So they were all like, yeah, yeah, we need to go to this pride parade and check out. It is so cool. Like uh, in a very excited way. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't think I can to all of these people. Like, hold up, hold up. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, maybe next year. Let's start with observing. Baby steps. Baby steps. So I was like, okay, so let's, you know, I checked out their schedule. And they were like, yeah, never, why don't you come hang out with us? I'm like, no, no, you know, I'm doing something else. Yeah, not my jam. You know, I'm going to do something else today. <laughs> I secretly made a little plan with a few gay friends of mine, and I went to the parade. And I was especially excited for Push DC because I was like, how cool would it be to see Indian Americans or just South Asian Americans right. marching in tribe, people who look like me, who talk like me, who, mm -hmm. you know, have a a family background like me in a pride parade in America and just like celebrating the pride, being so happy for who they are. So I should totally do this. And while the, the parade started, it was hot, it was 100 degrees and I was so excited. So I'm seeing this and it's so amazing seeing all these people. And then suddenly this, uh, you know, this truck comes with Bollywood music blaring out and, you know, <laughs> couples holding hands. Some of them are in their desi garb. Some of them are like, you know, cutely dressed and they're all like dancing to Bollywood music. And I'm like screaming, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. my people. <laughs> so, so as they were moving forward, the, the one of the person, you know, at the beginning, at the front of this uh, contingent was a gentleman wearing a white t-shirt and gray shorts. And his t-shirt said the word desi. And he was wearing, uh, he was holding a pride flag, and that happened to be Parag. At some point in the parade, when he came close to me, I called out, "Hey, Desi!" And he 
we heard i mean half a million people we heard me he came he danced with me for a few seconds and and then he left and i'm taking like lots of pictures super excited and that was that like nothing else this was june 9th and i came back to my dorm and i was like oh you know let me just check out my pictures you know from the pride parade so i'm just going through this oh, who is this guy he's so cute and you know he seemed really sweet and let's see who he is you know kush desi was a close group on facebook so i started looking at the profiles like 100 200 people in there like this list and nobody none of them was parag or looked remotely like parag again remember i just had this picture in my set of pictures then was named nothing i just knew that he was matching with kush desi so i just assumed that he was probably part of it So I think last, but one or two last, two before the last, there was this one guy. He had posted a few pictures of Parag, and uh, you know, I'm like, oh yes, this is the guy, this is the guy. And then you know, Parag is very public on Facebook, so I clicked on his profile, and I'm like, I don't know what kind of a guy he is. So let me just do a little background check, and so I went on Google oh and just goodness. wrote Parag Mehta just to see who he was, and again, knowing his public work and all that, so. all of the stuff that came up about his advocacy work with the api community south asians and lgbtq groups it, it was just so hard for me i'm like this is amazing what a cool guy and then i'm looking at his description and i read the word uh, religious views jain i was like dude this is a sign i mean yeah. if, i mean where else would you find a brown gay jain guy and i'm jain like i'm a follower of jainism so uh, yeah. i was so thrilled i'm like oh my god it's jain meant guy. to be yeah, yeah. his so love at first scroll he stalked me he <laughs> profiled yeah. me yeah. and then finally i decided i'm like you know what i think i've got the courage to write something so do you guys remember that coke feature on facebook yeah <laughs> it's yeah. aging aging you a little bit but yes coke yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for uh, making me realize that but yeah i used to be a coke feature and i was like let's see if you respond Yeah, and he poked me, and I first thought, "Who the hell pokes on Facebook?" And then, "Back is Web of Jane." And this was like Sunday night, so I just deleted it, went to sleep, didn't think about it. I woke up in the morning, I looked at my phone, and again, a little message: "Web of Jane has poked you." I was like, "This guy again?" So I deleted it, showered, went to work, got to the office, turned on my computer. First thing I see: "Web of Jane has poked you a third time." <laughs> Now I'm a little annoyed. So I deleted the post, and I actually responded to him on a private message, and I said. Are you just going to keep poking me, or do you have something to say for yourself? So I was like, "Oh boy, this is the moment I have to talk." <laughs> and I read the message that followed. It was a really long message. So okay. I wrote, you know, "Hi Parag, my name is Dev Jain. I'm a dentist from India. I came here to the U.S. to finish a master's degree in public health, and this was my first flight period. I never went to the ones in India for the fear of being outed." but you know there was something about this time you know the us i was so excited and you know happy so i wanted to check this out and you know while you in the parade i saw you and it was just the way you were dancing and so energized and so excited i was so happy to connect with you you know in that moment and then i came mm-hmm. and i saw you and then i read about you and you know it just warmed my heart and i was so happy and proud of somebody like you like imagine just to i mean i never imagined an indian american or a desi american you know living in the us uh, growing up in the us but still having those values of taking mm-hmm. care of our community thinking mm-hmm. about the community fighting for the rights of our community the kind of work that you've done for the asian american and the lgbtq community it just warmed my heart and you know what no, nothing no agenda here but i just want to thank you so if you're ever up i just want to take you out for a cup of coffee and thank you for all the time i mean oh my okay i know right i responded right away so look here that is a very kind thing to say thank you So I don't typically give out, you know, my phone number or meet strangers for coffee, but it sounds like you're new in the country. So here's my phone number. If you ever need a friend or someone to talk to, 
give me a call. And he called me that night and we spoke for about 20 minutes. And I was like, I'm going to meet this guy. So we met for dinner the next night at a really crappy Thai restaurant. Yeah, so <laughs> we went on a six hour date where we just talked and compared life stories and just really bonded and connected. And Bollywood, so much of Bollywood. It was very Bollywood. Wow. I was say, like, where are the movie rights that. here? Yeah. It started raining in the middle of the conversation. We actually had to duck and take cover under a building. Oh we my goodness. about our mutual love of Bollywood films. Yeah. Right. And he was shocked that I loved Bollywood having grown up here, but I, I do. Um, and so I started telling him about my favorite movie. And then he actually started singing to me from one of his favorite ones. He has a beautiful oh. That was the moment that sealed my deal. <laughs> I hope some of our listeners are taking some notes here. <laughs> I know. I mean, so many great notes. And I mean, just even like the encounter, like the chance encounter in a crowded parade, like yeah. where are like, Karan Johar needs to get on this. Like this is an amazing <laughs> movie in the making. Right. And then the pursuit after, oh, it's, it's beautiful. You know, we often tell this story and we say the persistence is really the lesson here, which I think is partially true. I would also say for anyone listening, whether you're straight or gay and you're wanting to be in a relationship, uh, from my point of view, it's also about letting down your guard. Because mm -hmm. a lot of us, especially as we get older, we become cynical about love. We get cynical about cheesy romance. Um, and I definitely was. And had it been at any other point in my life, I might not have picked up the phone and talked to him. I might not have gone out on that date. But the idea that you have to let love in and you have to take a chance on it is really important because I think now it's during pride month. Every time we come up on the anniversary of that parade, I remember that morning and I remember thinking about backing out. I remember thinking about flaking and not going to the parade. And I just, it causes me terror because I think how much worse off would my life be today if I hadn't gone to the parade, if I hadn't responded to the pokes, if I hadn't responded to the message, if I hadn't made that phone call, if I hadn't gone out on that date. Everything changed because I put aside cynicism. So let that be a lesson for all. And for me too, like I was, remember I told you at the beginning, I was so right. scared. I was worried that there will be so many people from my school, just from my community. And I'm like, what if I'm spotted and people think I'm gay? And I'm like, so I, I also get these nightmares. I'm like, what if I decided, you know, just to sit at home and not attend? And my life would have been so much different. So I think it's definitely cynicism, but also keeping some courage, just, you know, remembering that, you know, life is all about taking chances. Absolutely. Absolutely. Beautiful message behind that. So that's really awesome. Yeah. And Sorry, just the idea that, oh yeah, no, I was just saying that it's so easy to say no, you know, it's so easy to delete the poke, to ignore the message, to stay home, but you, you both opened up yourselves and takes courage, but look all the amazing things that came from it. So that's, that's an inspiring lesson for sure. So um, Parag, uh, you were born and raised in America and Vaiba from India. During those first few conversations, did you notice any differences right off the bat on how the two countries differ in this conversation of the LGBT community? I think similarity wise, there were quite a few, right? Like the whole notion of uh, being bullied as kids, being made to feel like if you were effeminate, you were a sissy and that was a bad thing. What was also really remarkable to me is that we both figured out that we had attraction to boys and then men when we were really young. I was probably eight years old when I figured it out. You were probably 10 about 10. And yet we both, without anyone having ever told us explicitly that gay is bad, because remember in our families, we didn't talk about this. It was never brought mm -hmm. up. But somehow as an eight-year-old for me and a 10-year-old for him, me in Texas, him in Delhi, we knew right away not to ever articulate this thing. We knew that there was something wrong about it. And I think that goes back to how a society presents relationships. What do you see on TV? What do you hear in the movies? What do you hear at home? 
those lessons have a big impact on our kids. Mm -hmm. And so one of the other things that I think is really powerful about not only our story, but about my dad's speech is really giving parents uh, an instruction to make sure that whether your kids are gay or not, you have to, as a parent, create the environment in which they are comfortable being who they were. Because for whatever reason, neither one of us were as kids. And I think that's true of most of my LGBT friends across different communities. We have to change that. We have to make it okay. Um, we have to take away the stigma of being gay, but we also have to normalize it. So have you guys traveled to India together as a couple? We have, yes. So we've done, I think, four trips now. Oh, yeah. four, four trips. But oh, the wow. First trip, yeah, so the first trip we did together was uh, when only my parents you know, knew about our relationship. Most of my family didn't. He's such a fun guy to hang out with. So my parents, you know, took some time, showed him around, took him to the best chart places and, oh, you know, yeah. best uh, street food places and hung out. It was, it was so much fun. I, and I hadn't been to India in over 20 years. 20 years, yeah. Wow. It was my first time going back uh, in a long time. And it was only for a week. So I went for a week. It was March of 2015. And uh, it was all still very raw for them. Because remember, Vebov only came out to his parents a year after we met. So we wow. met in the summer of 2012. He came out to his parents in the summer of 2013. Then the following summer, they came to the US and went on a family vacation, which they invited me very generously, invited me to join. And so now we're in 2015. And they invited us to India. And we spent this amazing week together. And it was a chance really to reconnect with the country because I hadn't I, I wasn't one of those kids who went to India every year, like a lot of kids mm -hmm. do, because all my family was here. All my uncles, aunts, cousins, everybody was in the U.S. So we didn't have as much of a reason to go back to India. Um, but once I met Veba, it became an annual trip. And I asked him once, you know, just out of curiosity, I said, you know, what does it feel like, you know, being in India for so many years? Mm -hmm. He's like, everybody looks like it. And that was such a powerful it's comment. Amazing. I was like, it's crazy, you know, like, I never realized that until I moved to the US again, you know, I became a minority because I never occurred to me. But when I asked him, he's like, yep, everybody looks like me. I don't have to constantly explain who I am and, you know, where I'm from. It sounds so relieving. That's awesome. So glad you got to experience that together. And after so many years too, India changes so fast. Uh, we go up probably every four years and every time we go back, it's just a completely different country. So this question is for Vaibhav. You had mentioned that you had come out to your parents just a year after you had met Varag. Um, what was that process like for you? And just for our listeners, how important is this coming out process? Oh, it was good. It was hard. It was very, very hard. I wouldn't, I wouldn't lie. I think it, it weighed on me for, for years, even before I met Parag, it just weighed on me for years because, you know, you have to know something about my parents. These people are just a sack of love. They are just mm -hmm. love, 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 love. The incredibly kind people have always been so loving and so, you know, understanding of me. Like, you know, again, it's not that they have understood this or they knew about this at all. Like, even the word gay, I don't think they knew any of it. But the way they have always been with me have, has been always very positive, very nice. So it always weighed on me. And I'm like, you know, they love me so much. And, you know, it hurts me that they don't know this big secret about me. And it's interesting that, you know, before I even moved to the US, um, a year before that, I was at home and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what I want to do next. And I started getting into a lot of fights because I was just so angry, I don't know, about at myself. And some of that anger just came out, you know, in the form of fights with my parents. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to talk to you, this and that. And you guys don't care. And they, you know, they would just not understand what's going on. And inside myself, and now I think about it and I feel so sad. I used to tell myself, you know, it's actually good in a way. 
So if I fight with them more, they'll start hating me. I'll go to America, you know, I'll have a life and, you know, I never have to come out to them. And it'll just be, you know, okay with both of us then. Like, you know, they wouldn't have to worry about me. I wouldn't have to worry, uh, be worried about them. And, you know, even if I do tell them that I'm gay, they probably won't care because they hate me so much, right? And as a child, for that, for a child to feel that it's so heartbreaking, I think of it now and, you know, how I just, like, underestimated my parents saying, you know, they would just hate me regardless of what I tell them. But, uh, you know, when I met Parag, I think I also understood the importance of coming out, wherein he, he actually met my parents before I even came out to him. So uh, in June of 2013, uh, May of 2013, I actually uh, graduated from my master's program and my parents were coming over. You know, they met him and, you know, knowing Parag, he was so incredibly kind. This guy left everything, four days he took off and he just took care of my parents and my brother and my sister now. Drove them around, took them places, do it, you know, planned lunches and dinners with friends and all of us, just for us to hang out. And they just loved this guy. Who wouldn't? He's so much fun. Amazing. And yeah, so, you know, so they had an idea. And, you know, after Parag met them, uh, you know, after they left, Parag mentioned to me, he said, you know, I've, I've been, we've been thinking about, you know, whether you and I have been talking about how, you know, this process will work for you moving forward and, you know, our relationship. You don't have to come out to anybody if you don't want to. But I think mm -hmm. you at least owe it to your parents. And because the amount of love that they have for you, the way they care for you, I think it'll be really uh, disheartening for them to find out from somebody else, uh, you know, versus uh, you from your own mouth. So maybe think about it. And if you want, you know, I've, I, again, sadly, we have, I didn't have a, a rule book. I didn't have a, you know, an idea book of how to do this, but I've done it and I can help you. I can guide you. So I give a lot of credit to Parag in helping me arrive to that decision. But coming to the decision was very hard given. Like I kept thinking how I do it, how I do it, how I do it. And I finally did in that year itself, uh, you know, in June, they, uh, sorry, in May, they met Parag for my graduation and actually came out to them in July. Uh, I had an incredible opportunity in Geneva, uh, working at a World Health Organization as a fellow there. And my parents in typical uh, Indian parent fashion, they're like, oh, Switzerland, we have to come. We have to see everything, oh, all yeah. the shooting locations. We have to go <laughs> right. to the mountains. <laughs> right. I was like, yep, let's do it. So they were so excited, thrilled, came down to Switzerland and, uh, you know, spent a week with me. We traveled all over Switzerland, France. On our way back, uh, on the very last day, I, you know, I told them, uh, but before I even told them, there was so much of contemplating that I did. Parag had actually come two weeks before, you know, we planned a little trip, we went to Italy together. And that trip was, I loved Italy and so did Parag, but we had such a horrible time as a couple. Because um, I, I kept fighting. I kept telling him, oh my God, what's your problem? He was stressed out. I was yeah. so stressed out. Because, you know, again, he was, he, well, like, if you want, we can go into details of, you know, what all happened leading up to it. It's, it's, I can tell it to you in short, but basically, you know, some people within my family were finding out through actions mm. that I should have taken, especially <laughs> on social media. He gave an interview with India Abroad newspaper. Uh, and it Before. showed up in the newspaper, and his brother ended up seeing it. He's like, "What the hell were you?" <laughs> he's like, "He's like, you weren't sure you want to come out, but you decided to put it in the newspaper." Fair <laughs> yeah. criticism. I'm like, "That's how I roll." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's how I like, go big or go home. <laughs> my family's in India. Who reads India abroad? It's like, actually, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and I had actually come out to my brother, and that conversation didn't go really well as I planned because he was totally against me telling my parents. He said, "Don't tell your parents. Don't, don't mm. tell our parents." you'll take 10 to 15 years from mommy papa's life. Oh, that's so hard. 
And so I myself was struggling so much. And you know, I this my communications guy came into the picture and I'm like, dude. I think I messed up. I do. He's like, yeah. What do you think of it? Let's do some PR on this. Let's put it. He's got a photo. It's like a big ass photo of him. It was on a marriage equality, right? What was it? Yeah, the Supreme Court had ruled uh, that uh, Proposition Eight. Oh, sorry, they ruled on DOMA, DOMA, which is the Defense of Marriage Act. This was in 2013, and they basically said that 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 law was unconstitutional. And so India Broad wanted to profile South Asian LGBT couples and getting their reactions to it. And because I worked on the Obama administration, I worked on LGBT rights. The reporter called me and said, hey, would you like to give a quote? And I said, yeah, here's my quote. And then he said, would your boyfriend like to give a quote? And instead of saying no, he gave a quote and it added a photo. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. So you in inspired way, him. You inspired in a way, him. We can, we can sort of laugh about it now. Of course, at the time, it was very serious yeah. and very scary. But I think that at the end, it was necessary, right? We sometimes need these action-forcing events to make us do the thing that we're holding on to. So I, in, I, in a way, am grateful for that faux pas because had that not happened, I'm not 100% sure he would have come out to his parents right then and there. Mm-hmm. But he knew now that the clock was ticking. Yeah. His cousin knew, his brother knew, his uncle and aunt knew. So he's like, time is now. It's- <laughs> I was like, you know, Parag Sahib, let me be very honest. If they hear from somebody else, it will break them. So mm-hmm. find the moment in time, like, yeah. again, I'm not expecting you to do it today, but my recommendation as somebody who loves you, cares about you, and also loves your parents, tell them when you can. And, you know, he gave such wonderful advice. And I think that's the advice I tell young people now that, you know, there are a few things that you always need to keep in mind when you come out. Uh, do it at a time when your parents are incredibly troubled. Like, so, you know, if you remember dad's speech, Parag's father's speech, you know, he said that at that time, Parag is like the valedictorian and, you know, he is, um, well, he was on the dean's list in his college, really, really smart kid. And the parents were like beaming with pride and Parag will tell more about it. But that was around the time he came out. So for me, that Geneva thing, guys, that thing was a game changer for my parents. They could not stop talking about, uh, you know, me and my position to my family in India. Oh my God, our son works at the UN. See, in the in the US, UN is not a big thing, but let's be honest, because US was the one who started the UN, right? Gave so much mm-hmm. of funding. But in India, in developing countries, it's such a huge deal. It really is. It has yeah. a, a very prestigious position. So I remember taking my parents to the headquarters in WHO and my mother, you know, so her tears streaming down her face, like just so happy and proud of who I was. So I think it helped them understand when I came out to them that, uh, you know, during that trip is that it's the same son. He hasn't changed exactly. the fact that you mentioned Kiran at the beginning that how much do I love my son at, uh, you know, 429? Do I love him as much as I loved him at 429 as I love him at 431? Same thing. It was just that feeling, I think, that maybe helped them. I don't know. I You know, they talk about it on and off. They haven't clear, you know, I've, sat down with me and told exactly what went through my, their mind but it was a process and it was very very hard I, mean, I think it was one of the most hardest days of my life and then after you had that conversation did you feel like a weight was lifted or oh, was yeah. it were more you panic, under more or... stress uh, so uh, this guy told me again he was he had gone through this so he told me he's like never trust me that night you will sleep like a bee and I did when I told my parents, and it was a very difficult conversation, and after I finished, I, you know, I said that I don't know what, you know, is in store for us, but I wanted you to know, and, you know, at least be aware before anybody else finds out. I slept that night like a baby, like the 
weight of the universe was taken off my shoulders and people don't understand this like you know it's so empowering just to say the word out loud that i'm gay like when i met parag you know i tell this to a lot of my friends i never said the word out loud that i'm gay never I, before that never i would just know it. i'm like yeah i'm like i'm into boys i would say but i would never say the word out because i would just have a weird this reaction i don't know if i can say it it's not really me so i actually you know when i met him i but i told parag later on i would actually stand in front of the mirror and practice saying i'm gay i'm gay mm. i'm gay just to get comfortable in my own skin to say who i am so when i said it, it was so incredibly liberating and i slept so well my parents did not sleep a single moment and it was very very hard for them but even in that moment uh, you know of that tough conversation also i remember these two things that happened one was when my dad you know stood up and he just came up my mother was shocked my dad came he just kept his uh, hand on my shoulder i'm crying they're all crying and my father was like theek ho jayega beta don't worry we're all here we'll we are here for you main tere saath hu don't worry about it and then throughout the conversations i started telling my parents about the bullying that i went through and all the you know trauma mental trauma that i went through and um, they my mother said i think we failed as parents and i started crying and i said why would you say that why would you say that you know that you failed as parents because i i i came out as gay that's why they said no no beta no not because of that you took 26 years to tell us such a big truth in your life so i think we failed as parents to give you that comfort to give you that space that our child could not share everything about us with us and that his just, mom his mom said we are the parents it's our job to worry about you it's not your job to worry about us and when he called me the next day and told me that i said to him you're going to be okay because if that was the reaction of your mom you got a good mom Yeah. because i think from in that moment they just looked at their son they didn't look at some uh, you know random stranger in the room who's telling them some something that which is formed and they're just looking at their son and incredibly and you know there's uh, you know to my uh, great uh, you know my luck they heard the words that i was bullied that i was you know had such a hard time that i was always you know looked down upon as poor and had such a hard you know time in school and they were like beta we failed as parents and you know uh, it's time for you to relax it's time for you to not worry about we'll do the work so don't worry about sweet tight wow that's so incredibly heartwarming to hear that and almost lucky that you have that support with, from your parents it's it's so i, I don't want to say rare but it's not always the case and that is what breaks my heart especially i'm sure you get the messages very frequently What words of inspiration can you give kids out there that might not necessarily have that support or that parenting? Look, I think when we both tell our stories, we focus on the positive, right? We focus on the love and the way we were embraced by our dads and um the fact that our moms came around. But the reality is it was a process. It took several years for them to really get yeah. comfortable and to get over it because after that incident in Geneva, there were several years of his mom calling him every day and in crying. tears and crying yeah. and and let me tell you it gets annoying after a while because you're finally like okay mom i need you to get over it and so the advice that we both give to anybody in this situation regardless of how your friends and family react is to be a little bit patient because what we have to always remember is that we also took time to come to terms with who we are i knew i was gay from the time i was 8 i didn't come out until i was 22 that means that i had 14 years to get comfortable with myself. He had 16 years to come to terms with who he was. Yeah. We owe our parents more than 10 minutes. 
and that was some uh, frustration that I constantly had. Like, I'm like, you love me. You said that you love me. Like, why are you doing this? Like, the few months after my mother, like, and you know, almost years also, he, she would just call and cry, and I would actually be so annoyed. I would cry, and I tell Parag, Parag, why is this happening? Like, how is this fair? Like, you know, they're my parents. They're supposed to love me. And then Parag reminded me that Parag, you had 16 years to be okay with yourself. How can you expect them to be okay in 16 minutes or 16 days, 16 weeks, or even 16 months? It takes time. Yes, it takes time. Give them time, but don't give them indefinite time. And I think that's the advice I would want to give everybody. Be patient. Always lead with love. There may be harsh words said, you know, they may get angry, they may get upset, but let's be very honest there. You know, beautifully, you know, Parag puts it, I think he puts it so much better than I do, but he said, you know, they had all these dreams that they were making about you and your life for years together of you growing up, doing things in the world, getting married, having children. You literally shattered those dreams in a matter of seconds. In a minute, you finished them. Give them some time to make new dreams. Give them some time to heal. Give them some time to bring back and, you know, feel that love again and make new dreams. And you have to be patient with that person because if you're not patient, it can go down a very bad road. We also don't advocate for everybody to come out yeah. because you have to measure your situation. Safety. There are people who are in situations where it is not safe for them to come out. We have met with Bangladeshi activists who have been, you know, have seen their friends murdered yep. for being outspoken LGBT activists. So I, I don't tell everybody to come out. I tell people to start a process of freeing themselves. And if you're in a toxic home environment where your parents or your siblings or your relatives are going to abuse you or they're going to kick you out or whatever, then fine. Find a way to become independent. Yeah. We often say that there's the family that God chose for you and then there's the family that you choose for yourself. And the latter is our communities. Yeah. So oftentimes for LGBT people, we have to go and build our own families of people who love and understand us and will welcome us. And so only then can we often feel safe to be who we are. So it, our story is one version of this. It is not instructive for everyone and we recognize that. And we just ask people, if you're in a position to come out, do it because the ripple effect that it will create, the number of people that it will give hope to yeah. is tremendous. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, like I said, no size fits all in Parag put it well, mm -hmm. but also, you know, uh, I was in a really weird situation where I was still in my master's program. My father was uh, funding everything. So there was a real possibility that he could have kicked me out and I was not in America. My father, if he would have wanted, he would have been like, give me a freaking passport. You are not going back to America. You're coming back with me to India. I'm booking a flight. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm an adult, but you know, there are, there is, there are limits to what I can do. He's sponsoring me. So I had a very real conversation with Parag and I said, Parag, you know, what if he does that? He's like, Web, have you seen Dilwale Dulan and Lejang? I'm going to come and rescue you. I love it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The good, good, good <laughs> thought. Yeah, let's, let's, let's talk. No more practicality. But I, I did mention, I said, you know, what if my dad says, okay, fine, do what you want to do. I don't care. And, you know, I'm not going to fund your education. So let's see how long you last in America with your uh, whatever gay culture, whatever you think it is. Mm. I had all these conversations. To this man's mm -hmm. credit, you know what he said? He said, don't worry about it. I'll fund your education. At least I have enough savings ever. Whatever I can, I will support you. We will take loans if we have to, but I will support you. Never think that, you know, it'll all stop. So I think it's important for people to assess. So a lot of times when people come to me from India and even in the US, I tell them, make sure that you're independent because that's the first step in doing it. Because let's say your story doesn't end up the way my story went and the way my parents react, at least you're independent. At least you don't have to, you know, be face consequences. It's surprising. I don't know if you looked at the statistics, 
homeless people in this country, a good majority of those homeless people are actually LGBTQ people who have mm-hmm. actually been kicked out of, yes, to be, who have been right. kicked out of their households so just oh for being goodness. Yeah. So, so that's something that anyone can do, right? Yeah. If you're listening to the show right now and you're asking, how can I be an ally? Look around your circle. Look at your friends and their kids. Are there LGBT kids that you know that you can be that person for? That mm-hmm. you can be their safety net? To say if anything happens, your, my home is always a safe place. You, I, will, I will provide care and shelter for you. Because we have to be, that's what being a community is, is we have to be willing to stand up and take care of each other. Absolutely. That's so important. Yeah. So, um, you know, speaking about that, you know, it, it sounds like you had or were building strong support systems throughout this whole process. So I'd love to know a little bit more about what did building that support system look like? Beba, you mentioned that you had some bullying. Um, Barag, you may have gone through some situations yourself. So how did, how did either of you like cope and what were the support systems that looked like to help you cope? Yeah, so I think it's this idea of building a circle of friends and um, people around you who love and embrace you and who sort of share your values. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started doing that when I got to college, right? I, I immediately, um, my roommate was gay and he, came, he and I had been friends in high school, but he came out that freshman year of college and his mom was actually, you know, somebody that was very important in my life because when I was in high school, I would go to their house and she was the one who sort of introduced me to this whole culture of gay liberation, right? Everything that happened after Stonewall, which was quite a bit, I didn't know that history. I didn't know that there were people who lived good, happy, healthy, productive lives as gay people. And it was really my, my, my friend's mom, Mrs. Drake, um, who I owe a great deal to, that she did that for me. And so when her son Dylan and I were roommates in college and he came out, I knew that I had this support network. And little by little, I started finding other people who were like me, who were in the closet, but inching their way out. And so I had this network of support so that by the time four years later, I finally came out to my parents. I knew that I was going to be okay one way or another because I had these people in my life. I had these people, you know, who were there to sort of stand by me and to protect me. And that's a, that's a great thing to have in your life. Mm-hmm. For me, it was obviously very different because in India, I, again, I didn't even know the word gay. Like, the way I found out was so weird. Like, you know, I was just talking to some woke friends of mine in like eighth or ninth grade. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, sex as teenagers talk. And, you know, one of them said, hey, do you know this, the, the, there are people who are gay? And like, oh, gay, what's gay? And again, this is me at a time where I'm actually confused about my own feelings. You know, mm-hmm. all the friends in my class are checking out girls. I'm checking out the boys, some of my friends even. I'm like, what is happening? This is so weird. But I knew enough that I should be talking about it. <laughs> so um, when I, you know, I heard the word gay, I'm like, I need to do more research. But I knew I couldn't be asking people about it. Because if I did, then I could, it could be easily be construed that, oh, Vebha was gay. So mm-hmm. I decided in my Catholic school that I have to find out that library should have some resources on it. I mean, come on, it's a good school. So I went to St. Xavier's in Delhi and I went to my library. I literally Nothing. looked for that old catalog that they have with paper, you know, slips, and it basically said the name of the books. Mm-hmm. I found one old Oxford dictionary which basically had the word gay when I found like in one dictionary and it said gay and then it said under it happy. And then maybe the third definition was homosexual, uh, you know, somebody who's attracted to the other. That's when I even knew, learned about the word homosexual. So I knew that this was probably what I was, but I knew that since there was nothing at all available resources in my library, it is something I should talk about. 
I should keep my mouth shut. I should not do anything. So I found my solace in, you know, spirituality, in religion. I remember, you know, the amount of bullying that I went through was hard. And when I did all that, I started to question. I'm like, I came from a very deeply religious household. So I would just go to my uh, temple and uh, uh, not worry about anything, just sit and meditate and think about, you know, what's going on in my life and why is it happening to me? And I think some of that meditation gave me solace that I'm like, you know, there is purpose to everybody's life. I started reading religious books and that helped me understand there's purpose to every human life and every, Jainism says that every life is nothing. And so that's where I found my solace. But then when I went to college, you know, I had some friends who was definitely more liberal. My best friend, Anisha, I was the first one. She was my first friend I basically came out to. And she was shocked. She, she didn't know how to react again. You know, she grew up in a metro herself. And we all met in this really fun town, Bangalore, when I went to my, my bachelor's. And she was really open about it. And she said, you know, I'm going to take care of you. So the bullying actually continued in college. So sometimes when I was bullied, she would stand up for me and she's like, do not do that. Like, you know, she wouldn't say outright, you know, who I was, but she would say, how dare you talk about Vebha? Like there's mm -hmm. no shame. Like imagine somebody would talk about your sibling or your own children like this one day, how would you feel? Yeah. So that was great. Go her. So, yeah, and then go her. And then Parag, you know, how he mentions community. I think it was so important to find community. I started living as an openly game and I think when I started when I moved to Bangalore because that's when I found an entire you know uh, group of gay men who are like celebrating their sexuality they're like parties that are happening I'd go you know go to discotheques I would actually also go to like these school events so the French embassy actually has an entire movement in the U.S. called Alia Francais which is basically institutes around the country which uh, helps people learn French and they're super artsy, knowing the French, like super artsy, super progressive, and they do these queer film festivals and all that. So I learned the word queer for the first time. Like, oh, mm. queer is also a way to express our community and, you know, the, the diaspora. So they had these film festivals. So I remember watching this uh, LGBTQ movie for the first time. It's called Morris. I don't know if you've seen it. But I've Maurice. Maurice. Uh, yeah. So With Hugh Grant. And this movie is like from the 80s, right? No? Yeah. And I could not believe that people were talking about this in the 80s and making movies about it. And I saw this, remember, in a, in a small room in the center with like six, seven, uh, seven or ten people sitting on the floor on like these floor mats and watching it on a projector and learning so much, interacting with people and not just seeing, you know, there's so much to being gay than just, you know, sex. Because I think in our community, what happens is people hear about uh, gay and it immediately they start thinking about same sex and the word sex. Mm. I mean, we come from a culture where sex is such a big taboo. We don't talk about sex with our parents. They don't talk to us about it ever. But by the way, not part of our culture. It was imposed on our culture. Us, yes. mm -hmm. I think part of the education of our community has to be that it was the Mughals and the British who brought this sort of prudish view of sex and sexuality. Right. You go back to the origins of Indian culture. Yeah. Uh, you go to the temples of Mahinjadaro. The, we celebrated sex in all of its forms and sexuality. So mm -hmm. I think sometimes when people talk to us, they're comfortable with like the love and the romance and the marriage, but they don't want to address the sex that happens between men or sex between women. And that's important too. We need to be overall as a culture way more sex positive. Yeah. You know, when I look at what's happening in India right now, particularly with the high incidence of sexual assault and rape and violence against women, so, is, yeah. so much of it has to do with repressive sexual culture. If Absolutely. you constantly split boys and girls up as children, you don't let them interact with each other. Mm -hmm. You make sex feel taboo. It cannot be talked about. It cannot be talked. What did you think was going to happen? Right? You cannot repress human nature. You right. have to educate it and you have to nurture it in positive and healthy ways of expressing itself. And so I think 
there's so much to be learned from our stories, but I just think the big takeaway is whether it's his friend Anisha or my friend Mrs. Drake or the movies that we got to see, you have to normalize being gay for people because mm -hmm. that's the only way it's going to be easier for them to come out. But also because we're talking about mental health and the work that Munmukti does, you have to remember that there's an enormous toll that you have to pay if you're living a lie, if you're living in the closet. And that's why for a lot of gay men and women, when they come out, they deal with severe PTSD. They deal with addiction-related issues. They deal with homelessness. Anxiety, because, depression. Because yeah. we have never been taught how to live healthy lives. We had to figure it out on our own. And we are lucky that we are where we are. But for many of our LGBT brothers and sisters, they didn't have it as fortunate as we did. So yeah. I, I hope that people listening here will think about what they can do. Um, to be allies. Yeah, and especially in a culture where the, just the word mental health is also such a big taboo. Absolutely. You know, in Hindi, we have a word pagal. Like, we use it so loosely, but when mm -hmm. you really call them the pagal, like, you're degrading, you're denigrating them, saying that, oh, you're lesser than us. You don't know any better. And if, uh, you know, there are times that the, the way I grew up, we were always told, oh, never talk about mental health to anybody. Like, you know, if they were to ever find out anything is within a family or anywhere else, you, that's it. Your prospects as a family and, you know, moving forward in society and getting married to a good match is over. That's it. So, so much of repression, even around talking about mental health. Like, I never, I used to get, you know, suicidal thoughts. Parag has, uh, you know, attempted suicide, unfortunately, several times. And it's the reality. People are still doing it. And I see it in India. I see it here. And we don't talk enough about it. And the problem is that because I, we've just misstigmatized it so much. We just don't want to talk about it. And, and I think I went through so much of that myself because I'm like, I'm having these weird thoughts, but how do I talk about it? I want to kill myself. What do I do about it? How do I do this? Why am I having these thoughts? There was this amazing moment in our relationship where we were at the Pentagon City Mall in DC. And we were coming down the escalator. And we've been going through this rough patch where we were constantly bickering and fighting and I couldn't figure out what was going on. I'll never forget, we were on that escalator and he turned to me and he said, I think I have mental health issues. I want to go see a therapist. And I was so proud of him in that moment because I knew he was breaking out of generations of stigma and pain to say something that was so courageous. And he started to see a therapist and things started to get better. He got on medication. He put a name to what he had. And a few years later, he wrote a post um, on Facebook. I think it was right mm -hmm. after Anthony Bourdain had died by suicide. And I remember he showed me this post in the morning. This was a year before we got married. He had drafted this post where he was basically going to come out as somebody who suffered from depression and anxiety. He was going to talk about the fact that he gets suicidal thoughts and he doesn't know why. He doesn't know where it comes from. He doesn't know what to do about it, but he's seeking help. And he asked me, he said, do you think I should post this? And I'll be very honest. I said, no. I said, I think this could be really hard. I mean, as much as I encourage him to come out as gay, I was like, this is a whole different animal you're about to get married. My cousins and uncles and aunts are going to see this. My parents are going to see this. It's going to raise all kinds of questions. Are you sure you want to do this to yourself? And he said, the only way things will get better is if people like us start talking about it. Because people are paying attention to what we say. So why not use yeah. that for care? And he was 100% right. And I was 100% wrong in that moment. It was one of the proudest moments of my life with him is when he did that, because I knew how much courage it took. But I also saw the immediate response he got from people who said, thank you for saying what we haven't been able to say. Thank you for shedding light on this topic. It's the only way it's gonna get better. And you know, the reason I, sorry, the reason I did it was very simple because I am sit, standing in a metro station and the train's about to come and I want to jump in traffic. 
I don't know why I wanted to do it. It started to scare me. Like, I, I used to take public transportation every day. And this was a reality for me every single day. And then, you know, during lunchtime, I used to leave my work and, you know, there was a little uh, stream that ran down, uh, you know, close to my office. Uh, the height from the bridge to the stream was at least 20 feet. I'm crossing the bridge every single time. I'm like, I should jump. I should maybe jump. And I'm like, but I don't want to jump. I love my life. I love my parents. I love my partner. How is it going to affect them? And if I were to do anything of those, like if I were to do any of those actions, how would it impact them? So more than anything else, it scared me so much. And I didn't know who else to talk to. And, you know, I, I was so scared. Like if one day I did it and he were to find out in the most horrible way possible, you know, it's going to break him. And, you know, he used to tell this to me when I shared with him, he's like, whenever you get these thoughts, just think about that first phone call that I have to make to your mom and how she's going to react. And we don't think about that. But again, he, he and I talked about it and what I understood is it's not my fault. It's not something that it's in my control. It's something that my body does to me. It's, the, it's something that my brain does to me and I have no control of it. So when we have a, you know, we have a cut and we have an injury, we apply medication. It's not our fault. Like that's how the body reacts to it. So if you have a mental health issue, if you have depression, if you have anxiety, that's not your fault. It's something that the body is doing to you. So what do you do when you have a disease? You take treatment for it. You take help for it. So I was so worried. And even before I told Parag, you know, I often give credit to this colleague of mine who was actually openly gay in my past, uh, you know, work uh, place. And he was basically an array of hope. Like I would go and talk to him about mental health and the way he would you know, react and say, hey, um, oh my God, this is so stressful. I need a Xanax. And I'm like, what's Xanax and what are you talking about? And he would start talking about these things and he gave me so much of courage and you know, just talk so openly about mental health and I realized how empowering that was. And I, one day I just like, everybody had left. It was six in the evening in the office and I said, hey, do you have a minute? Can I talk to you? And the man, he's like, yeah, what's up? Hey, I said, hey, can you give me your therapist's phone number or where do you go? I don't know, like, you know, there's so many questions. What do I do? How do I start? I'm so scared. I think I have suicidal thoughts. He's like, don't worry, I'm an amazing therapist. Uh, here's who you call, this is what you do. And to, to my surprise, I found Whitman Walker uh, you know, Center in DC, which was, I don't know if you guys know about it, big shout out to Whitman Walker and the work they've been doing for decades. They basically are an all LGBTQ run hospital medical establishment clinic, basically. Wow. Uh, doctors, nurses, attendants, you would enter and the, reception, the receptionist would be a trans woman. Your doctor would have some experience working with the LGBTQ patients, have so much of, uh, you know, Cultural, cultural competence and, right. and you know just like uh, minority uh, you know competency basically talking about these things and it was so empowering for me just to say that and it told like it just helped me understand that no I'm not uh, some uh, oddity I'm just part of the normal but I'm just a little different and I mean being so vocal about it um, like you said so many forms of repression that so many people go through, whether it's repressing sexual thoughts or suicidal thoughts or anything like that. Um, and now, Vibe, you've become quite vocal about, you know, how you're dealing with these issues, um, which is, you know, so incredible. And um, the word that kind of kind of came to mind when you were talking, it was just, I think, grateful uh, gratitude in terms of that 
you recognize the point where it's like, I have to tell something to someone about this, that I, I'm feeling suicidal, but I don't want to die. Something's going on. And rather than just going through with it, you could reach out. Um, so I guess like, yeah, just, um, is there anything else you'd want to mention in terms of, or anyone who might be facing these kinds of thoughts or anything close to anything that you'd want to tell them? I, I would just say, you know, have, I mean, don't be afraid. Like if you don't have an ally, go see a doctor, like find people. There are resources available. Like, you know, when I grew up in a time, there weren't any resources. I didn't even know what mental health was. I thought if you say mental, if you say mental health, that means you have an issue and you don't talk about it. I didn't have any resources. So please find the resources. There are resources, if, especially if you're in America, even in India, the resources like Manmukti, there are so many resources out there, find them. And, but, but also find, uh, you know, people in your own family, even before you come out as gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual, talk about your mental health issues with your own parents, with your own family, with your siblings. Ask them to listen to you because it's important. I think we've become such isolationists. We, we live in a society where we don't talk. You know, I often tell this to Parag, like we are in India and we talk about, make fun of our culture, how we are in everybody's business. You know, it's in being in everybody's business that we keep our community going also. Like mm. over here, I remember, the first time I moved to the US, uh, you know, Kieran and Audrey, we basically, I felt so isolated. Like it was, I did not know my neighbor. I still, we barely talk to our neighbors, the people in front of, because that's the culture here. We don't right. talk to each other. We don't want to talk because there's a weird bubble. And you know, the fact that Parag was saying we have this weird bubble, we need to break that bubble. We need to be more open about who we are, but also be compassionate to every human being. Like whoever you're talking, we have this, you know, we'll be trolls and we like write such horrible things about each other. We say such horrible things about, you know, people on their faces behind their backs. Why? Like there's so much of hatred right now. You know, hundreds upon hundreds of people are dying around us. Like why do we have to add another layer of hatred and anger and misery to people? Like start with love, start with some element of kindness. Whoever you're talking to for the first time, especially in, uh, you know in our desi community be kind to them there's it, it doesn't take a lot and you know there is something that even i i'm not perfect i also you know default you know i get mad at parag and this is part of my mental health he's understood and you know ha having an incredible partner like him who's supported my mental health and wants to be with me regardless of what i have i get i get anger bouts where i start yelling and screaming at him for no reason and i don't know why this happens and he understands it but he has also learned to cope with it but uh sharing with people and telling that there is a problem and I don't have control over that problem. So identify what, what is happening with you, talk to people and then seek treatment. These are three things. And you know, Parag and I are always here. That's why we are so public. You want to talk to folks in Manmukti, please do that. Write to us. We are more than welcome. I'm still checking my secret folder on Facebook every single day and so is Parag and we'll talk to you. If you need somebody to talk to, if you don't find an ally, just talk to us, talk to somebody because it's important. We have to keep talking. Thank you so much for being so unfiltered, especially on the topic of, you know, mental health and suicide and, or ideations. And I think that that's a common issue nowadays, as you mentioned, we are so uh, closed off, you know, we share what we're wearing, what we're eating, but maybe not as open about what we're feeling and what we may be going through because to be honest, when you do open up, you realize that everyone is going through something or other, right? And being there for each other, even in the littlest form, hello, hi, 
you know, how are you doing? It, it can open up such a, it can open up people's hearts in so many ways. And we really appreciate that you are so open with us. Um, I want to talk a little bit about in the recent news in India, um, the death of Shushant Singh Rajput, uh, the well-known Bollywood celebrity who uh, committed suicide. So there's been this big uproar on the topic of suicide in India within the South Asian communities. Um, what, what do you make of these conversations that come out? And it seems like the media is just focusing on, well, what could have been so bad in his life that he wanted to commit suicide? Like, what do you make of these conversations? We, we shouldn't always look for cause and effect, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's a tendency, I'll, I'll say this as somebody who loves and, uh, and lives with somebody who has suicidal ideation, is that we can't take it all on ourselves. We're always looking for, for uh, someone to blame. Right? Mm-hmm. It was like Karan Johar because he boycotted um, Sushant or you know, I see these petitions going around. That's actually doing a disservice, right? As Vavo said, depression and anxiety comes from your body. It's a chemical imbalance that leads to these idea- ideas coming. So in a suicidal person, the same hurt that would be bearable for a non-suicidal person suddenly becomes life-threatening for the suicidal person. And so we have to recognize that people feel hurt in different ways. People feel pain in different ways. And so what we should be doing when we have a tragedy like what happened to Sushant or what happened to Robin Williams or Anthony Bourdain, these high profile suicides, rather than being a time to come together and be more loving and more tolerant and and telling people their value, we actually tend to tear each other apart. And what's really troubling for me is that when there is a high profile suicide, it often leads to a spike in suicides. And so we have to be very careful about how we talk about it. Because I remember when I was in high school, one of uh, my classmates committed suicide and there was a lot of discussion about how much should we talk about it because you can get copycats cat suicides, right? People think that it's a way to be loved, it's a way to get attention, it's a way to be martyred. So I think we really have to have, again, this is why education is so important. We have to talk about suicide, we have to talk about people's value. And I think the most important thing is this, tell the people in your life every day that they are valuable, that they are enough, and that the world is a better place because they are in it. Because we don't always realize, but people don't always feel that way. There may be times in each of our lives where we have felt like we didn't have value, or we have felt less than. And so how can we, uh, in every day, in every way, show to the people that we care about that their life matters to us? Everybody is fighting a battle, but I think, and is fighting, you know, every single day. But for some of us, you know, the cuts are deeper, as I mentioned in my post. Like, so this is the reality. Like for Sushant, I would say there would there could be so many reasons. Like, but the thing, the the spotlight that you have when you're a celebrity, you can't talk about these things. You can't talk openly about it because I I'm assuming as if I were him, I would think, oh my God, I am so famous. I have millions of people following me, idolizing me. If I say I have depression, I would be outcasted. Nobody would want to follow me. Like nobody would want to idealize me. Nobody would want to even cast me in pictures. Like I would actually lose my job, my employment. So imagine like the, it's basically the stigma I think that has led him to what he did because he was like the only way out. I would think as somebody who's felt it myself, like I sometimes feel like, and before I came out, I often felt that I think the only way to end this is just end my life. It'll end my misery and it'll end my family's misery, and it'll end everybody's misery. It's pain. It's pain. And you don't know how to express that pain because you can't talk about it. You can't take any treatment about it because if you talk about it to anybody, people go out and gossip. But I'm like, you know what? Before anybody starts to gossip, start talking it you know, so openly because you, 
you will then feel so empowered. You know, Parag tells me like, when he said this, I don't think it's a good idea for you to say it. I feel like whenever I do it, I'm healing myself. Mm -hmm. Every time I talk to yeah. you guys, I've spoken to my other friends about it, my closest of friends. For, like for heaven's sake, I'm in public health. I'm like, this is public health 101. You have to take care of your own health and advocate for your own health and you know, public health before you even teach others about it. And if I can't lead by example, who am I to be going out and telling, you know, governments and societies, oh, you need to do this, take your pills and, you know, talk about prevention. We need to be talking about prevention first. So I told so many of my friends who are in my public health program and they were all so incredibly kind and they're like, they did what friends do. They're like, you're sorry that we weren't there for you. I know this. I'm here for you now. And I know this and I will do better and I will start checking on people. Yeah. Talk about it as much as you can because it doesn't make you any bad, or but it, it empowers you. It gives you so much of uh, you know energy as you do this in front of people and heals mm -hmm. you. It, my it really does. I feel like that that it takes the power out of that fear, yes. you know, that fear that really grips you. And I I know I go through this kind of personally as well. And when I think about it, like what is my fear? I face it head on. And it takes the power away and then it no longer has power over me and I can move on from that. And like you said, it's, it's a form of healing to be able to talk about these things and, yeah. and just minimize it instead of it weighing on you like, like it shouldn't, right? Yeah. Thank My you so God, much for sharing like, that. Yeah. I, I would think about like you have a youngster, you have a young kid at home, like the postpartum depression path, like women in our society go through so much of that, mm -hmm. but it's just like, Nobody cares about it. Nobody wants to talk. They're like, yeah, everybody suffered. So do you. You don't talk about it. And right. You can't take, you can't take it in stride. Yeah. You have to actually, when I worked for the Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, he used to always talk about the, the triangle of health, right? And the three points of the triangle were physical health, nutritional health, and emotional health. And we talk so much about the first two, right? Uh, dieting and calorie intake and how do you eat better? We talk so much about going to the gym and working out and getting in physical activity. And then when it comes to emotional well-being, we're silent. Okay. I remember he and I went to the University of Texas to do a, a talk, at, which was my alma mater, and there were 500 college students in the audience. And he started the talk by saying, how many of you have dealt with an unbearable amount of stress in the last month? And it was final season. And 499 hands went up in the air. Oh my and then he said, how many of you had the tools you needed to know how to deal with that stress? Two hands went up. We do oh, not teach people specific tactics. We teach you how to work out and exercise. We teach you how to eat right, but we don't teach you how to deal with stress, anxiety, depression, and mental health issues. And there are so many ways from gratitude to meditation to mindfulness that we know how to deal with. India taught the world how to do this hundreds of thousands, you know, thousands of years ago um, with meditation and yoga, but we don't treat it like a sort of standard part of the health curriculum. And so I think whatever we can do to give people the tools they need to cope with their ups and downs, to cope with isolation and depression, um, the better. And of course, the most important thing is connectivity because we are so digitally connected and yet we are not emotionally connected. And so if we can teach people, how do you have conversations like this? I think for guys in particular, it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. I find that men have a very hard time mm -hmm. with their male friends in having these conversations. I think women are much better at it you, you rely on each other and you share deep, dark thoughts and secrets, but men are not trained to do that. And so 
whatever we as gay men can do to bridge the genders a little bit, because we know the best of and the worst of both sides, is how we can help our straight guy friends be better about talking about their feelings, expressing their emotions. Like you don't become less masculine if you talk about emotions. If you cry, that doesn't make you less of a man. I mean, I cry because, you know, I am proud of who I am, but I also wear my tears with pride. I mean, it shows that I'm an emotional, I am I'm, uh, compassionate and mm-hmm. I care about people. That does not mean a less uh, man. It makes me a more human, if anything. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what's important, especially, you know, men, uh, women also, I think, but especially straight men, oh man, it's, it's, it's hard to talk to them about it. Yeah, that's a huge stigma within the community as well. Definitely should be spoken up about. Mm-hmm. And so, um, Parag, uh, would you mind telling us a little bit more of your work um, that you have done um, either under the chief of staff of the U.S. Surgeon General or um, just as a mental health advocate? And, you know, what does that work look like and um, what inspires you to continue with that work? Well, what inspires me is my grandmother. And I wrote about her in my Humans of Unmulti post. Mm-hmm. My maternal grandmother lived with us from when I was three years old until she passed away. 22 years later, and she had schizophrenia. And when you are living in India, as she was, and are diagnosed with schizophrenia back in the 1960s and 70s, um, there were not resources, there were not thoughtful medical treatments, and she was stigmatized, and she had a really tough, difficult life. It was like a death sentence, I would say. It's it's a horrible thing. Uh, She was kicked out of her family, Um, her husband left her, and basically she lived a shell of a life until she moved to the United States and came to live with our family because my mother, her daughter, um, decided to grow up to become a physician and she specialized in psychiatry. And so she was able to provide my grandmother with therapy, the treatments, the drug uh, that she needed in order to treat her schizophrenia, which had never been done for her in India. In India, they put her in a mental asylum, they locked Mm -hmm. her up in a room um, and they treated her like a pariah. And it was only through that that my grandmother got better. And I think a lot about my, my grandmother, Ranjinba, and I think about the life that she could have had um, had she gotten proper treatment early on. And it's always a reminder to recommit ourselves every day to making sure that people have the treatment and the help and the thoughtful uh, interventions that they need in order to survive. Because all of these things are survivable. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to have proper treatment. And this is why I think science is so important. You know, we're having a political debate right now Um, where we're still trying to argue for the role of evidence-based decision-making and science-based decision-making. And it confounds me that we still have leaders in our country today, including our president, who denies science and who denies all the advance that science has provided us. And we have to stop that because if we don't fund mental health the way that we're so eager to fund law enforcement and Mm -hmm. the imprisonment of people, what do you think is going to happen? We have more Black men in prison today than there were black men slaves in the history of this country. That is a problem because we are not treating the issue. We are not treating addiction. We're not treating crime. We're not treating mental illness. If we don't do that, then society is going to continue to get worse. We're going to continue to fester in the problem. So we need thoughtful, evidence-based, and science-based interventions and, to make sure that we're treating what's and wrong. And not just, you know, people who are suffering, but also as us, like, I would not just think about black people, I would think about the white people and Asian people and the Hispanic people. Like, we as allies need to learn where we are in our mental health process. How do we understand? We need to educate. Education is such a powerful tool for mental health. So educating before talking, listening more than reacting, I think Absolutely. is important. 
remember like we were we were talking about this like we are so quick to jump to a conclusion why are they looting why are they doing yeah. this and i'm like has have any of you taken a second to sit down with a black person and ask them what their history is i'll be honest I, our, our community is also at fault mm-hmm. we i grew up in india where people are horribly racist against people who are darker skin when i grew up there i were we were always told that black people were the problem in america and that's the notion i came up with like when i came to the us and parag educated me it's like that huh, it's not like an it's 400 years of a horror story it's 400 years of an oppression that they've gone through you know it's interesting i in public health we, they actually have a term it's called post traumatic slavery disorder or slave disorder where people have been so traumatized over ages their bodies their mental health has been altered medically yeah wow. it's melted over genes have altered over generations because uh, there's so much of well because know, trauma passes down yeah. right mm-hmm. when 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 a group of people goes through a traumatic event whether it's slavery or the genocide of the native americans or the holocaust the future generations inherit genes that are altered by that trauma and so we don't think about the impact and Kieran you started this whole podcast with the story of stonewall and you actually used the term riot and uprising and we celebrate that riot mm-hmm. we celebrate those drag but let's remember what it was it was a hot summer night in june of 1969 and a group of gay men and drag queens are trying to have a drink at the bar drag and queens the, of color and drag queens were puerto rican yeah. and black and the police mostly white police force comes in to raid this thing and arrest people and in that moment something snaps in these people and it was a drag queen who finally said enough is enough are you going to let them keep doing this and they did the unthinkable they fought back against the cops Well that was a riot, right? And so when people look at what's happening today on the streets and the people protesting Black Lives Matter and they're like, "Well, why do they have to burn businesses? And why do they have to loot the stores?" I'm like, "Cuz they're angry." Yeah. Because for 400 years they've tried to play your game, they've tried to play by your rules and nothing gets better. And the anger and the rage has boiled over and sometimes in history we need to pause and let that rage sink in. We, the people who are causing the oppression, need to hear the rage and we need to change and alter because of it. So that's part of mental health. Absolutely. I mean, and I think like it just shows how interconnected all of these things are. You know, we started at one place with um Pride Month and and your love story and then now we're coming to a place of where it's really it really is about I think what comes to mind is representation and listening. Um representation, listening, interaction. um are just so powerful and can cut across so many um so many repressed issues first of all can we also talk about how amazing the work you guys are doing cuz yeah. i we don't see south asians talking about it so you know it's we are thankful to you that you even asked us to talk about this because you know everybody wants to learn about our love story and how but nobody wants to talk talk about the difficult side of relationships the difficult side of our community of our uh, you know of our people so it's so wonderful what you guys are doing so thank you so much to both of you doing what yeah, you do. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being with us today. I I found your story so inspirational on so many levels, not just, you know, that you're a part of the LGBTQ community. I think it's beneficial to all relationships in general and also um friends and family who may have family members who are dealing with this and that was what inspired me to even get involved with Manmukti was because I felt like I needed to be a better ally and I just didn't know enough. I needed to have more conversations uh with people who are living it. you know so i learned so much from you guys today thank you so much for inspiring us 
Well, my pleasure. Thanks. So thank you again to Barack and Vaibhav for joining us today, for sharing so many facets of their personal life. Uh, we hope you, our listeners, found it as inspirational and motivating as we did. I know I, for one, have goosebumps still from our conversations here. So hopefully you could take something out of this conversation, just realize that it's about representation, it's about listening, it's about interaction. So reach out to those who are close or not so close to you, be that ally for them. Thank you for joining us here today. Don't forget to follow our Instagram page at Manmukti, M-A-N-N-M-U-K-T-I. You can also find us on Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, share it, please, and look out for our next episode. Bye for now. Bye-bye.